Welcome to What's the Deal? It's our investment banking podcast on Making Sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of What's the Deal, we'll be exploring the trends that drive deal making today and see what's really transforming industries the world over, from tech disruption to geopolitics and more. Hi, I'm Rama Varyankavl, and I will be the host for this edition of What's the Deal? I am joined by Fernando Rivas. Fernando Rivas is the head of North America Investment Banking and also manages the firm's investment banking relationships with some of our largest financial institution clients. He's a JP Morgan veteran of over 25 years and has worked on M&A and capital raising transactions totaling over $500 billion. So Fern, I thank you for joining us. Really thrilled to have you today. <laughs> Thanks, Rama. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. So I'll start by saying that in my 20 years at JP Morgan, I haven't seen anyone who's a more astute observer of the markets and being able to connect what's going on in the markets with how our clients and when JP Morgan makes corporate finance decisions. So we'll talk about that, talk about the rather unusual times we seem to be living in, in terms of volatility in the markets. But again, focus on what do you do if you are a CEO, if you're a board, you're a management of a company, whether it's a financial institution or a corporate, how do you make decisions in these times? So why don't we kick right in? For now, I'll start by asking you to give us some context. How did we end up in these highly volatile times? Sure. Jamie was recently at the Bernstein conference, and he talked about a potential hurricane out there, and that's gotten a lot of attention. And first off, part of Jamie's mindset, and he talks like that a lot, is always being prepared for tough times. And that's the way we've run the company. It's the way he's always run the company. Fundamentally, we've got a confluence of three forces, and it's the combination of those three things that we've got really limited experience with. First off is you've got an unbelievably strong, arguably overstimulated economy. Households, corporates are in great shape. Their income is strong. They're spending very strongly. But the economy at its current state is super strong. Second, you've got the great unwind of massive government intervention, which is going to be less fiscal spending, quantitative tightening, higher rates. You put a little bit of facts around that. The budget deficit the last two years was close to $3 trillion each of the last two years. That's coming down to about a trillion dollars, so $2 trillion less of deficit spending. The Fed is going to take a trillion and a half dollars of liquidity out of the market over the next two years. They took the balance sheet from $4 to $9 trillion. They're now going to take out a trillion and a half at about $80 to $90 billion a month, and we really don't know how that's going to work. And finally, the investing world was just set up for prolonged negative real rates. And we've had a sea change in terms of the yield curve and the rate outlook. We were close to zero short rates. We were below 1% on the 10-year. We're now pricing 3% terminal Fed funds rate. And importantly, Powell and the Fed have made it really clear that they won't stop there if they've got to break inflation. And that just has huge implications both for values. If you just think about the time value of money, that change in rates makes huge changes to terminal values, which is why you've seen growth stocks come off so much. And you've got a huge technical as investors. Everybody was structurally overweight equities, and you now need to rebalance your portfolios with a whole bunch of asset classes becoming more interesting. And finally, you've got huge geopolitical events going on. So typically, geopolitical events don't impact the economy that much. 
but we've got a land war in Europe, which is inherently unpredictable. You're unhooking from Russian energy, which is inflationary. And you've got a recalibration of the West relationship with China. You put these three factors together, which is really strong, overstimulated economy, unwind of government intervention, higher rates, quantitative tightening, the geopolitical shifts. And that's just add a lot of uncertainty and volatility to the markets. It's hard to call the ball where we go from here. And just as good facts and bad facts come out, you see a lot of whipsaws in emotions and in the market. Clearly, we've had a big repricing. Most indices are down 20 to 30 percent. And importantly, if you look under the surface, you've got a lot more damage done with the average NASDAQ stock is off 40 to 50 percent. So we've reset. It's going to be volatile going forward. Hopefully, we're past the worst of it. That's reassuring to hear, but I'm still going to put you on the spot and ask you about, I think, the top question in everyone's minds, whether they're issuers or investors, which is recession risk. I think data seems to suggest that it's pretty hard to navigate all of these varying forces you talked about and have a soft landing and avoid a recession. That seems to be at least conventional wisdom. Question for you, do you agree with conventional wisdom or do you think this time could be different? And also curious about what indicators do you follow to get a gauge on where we are going? As Yogi Berra said, it's hard to make predictions, particularly about the future. So I'm not a great economist or market prognosticator, but I think most folks think there still is a real shot of a soft landing. And you can pick your probability for that 20, 30, 40 percent. I think conventional wisdom is that there's going to need to be a recession to get inflation under control. I think that the first thing folks are looking at is just the job market and job growth. And we think we've got 250 basis points hikes coming in the next two Fed meetings to get to 25 basis point hikes, which means the Fed thinks they can start slowing down because they've got it a bit under control. You've got to go from about 400,000 jobs per month to about 100 to 200,000 jobs per month, which is what our economists are predicting and hoping for happens at the end of the summer. I think if you look, the equity market is the big discounter of all information, that and the yield curve. And the stock market does tend to lead the economy by several months, if not longer. If you look at the last six major cycles post-World War II, all of them saw the equity market bottom six to 12 months before the recession, before you got to the bottom in the economy. A lot of people think they're still 5 to 10% down from where we are here. And that's largely because PE multiples have come down a lot, but you haven't seen earnings come down a lot. And if you think about, did we have a big pull forward in demand? The stimulus is yet to be withdrawn. We've had a lot of wealth destruction. We've got purchasing power erosion, and we've got higher rates and oil prices. You know, it feels like that is going to have an earnings impact that perhaps isn't yet being factored in. So I think most folks think you're going to get some leg down in the markets, maybe 5 or 10% down more, and then the market's going to see the turn and move up before the economy does. Interesting. You said something there, which maybe gives me an idea for our follow-up episode. Is truth in the equity markets or in the bond markets? I've always believed truth is in the bond markets. Uh, It could be a follow-up conversation. The the conventional wisdom is that the fixed income market is a better predictor of recessions and that the inverted yield curve has been the best predictor of recessions, which intuitively makes sense because equity investors are naturally optimistic and fixed income investors tend to be more conservative and downside focused. So 
I, I think most on Wall Street would tell you, if you had to pick between the two, look at the yield curve over the stock market. But they're both very forward-looking and reasonably predictive. Fair enough. Fantastic. So with that backdrop, you're obviously following very closely, but I also know all our clients are following very closely. Let's do a little bit of a pivot to what does this really mean for corporate actions, right? Let's start with the M&A market. How are you in your day job when you're not managing a large business as a banker? How are you advising management teams and boards on what's going around the world and how should they view especially M&A decision-making? Yeah. So look, tough markets like these, and going back to where we started with Jamie, always thinking about the downside, and he's always thinking about having a fortress balance sheet and building a great company. And if you look at what the market is paying for and what it's valuing today, clearly scale is at a premium, durability is at a premium, companies that have strong cash flow, strong pricing power, strong moats are getting rewarded. And a simple way of looking at that is if you just look at the EVD, EBITDA multiple on the S&P 500, the large cap stocks versus the mid cap S&P 400, it's at about a 20% premium. So one of the things we're always talking to companies about is how can you build a better company? And M&A is one of the best tools to do that. Clearly, some of the best deals are done in volatile and tough market. You can buy assets at cheaper prices because you're taking on risk. As Warren Buffett likes to say, be greedy when others are fearful. The trick is, of course, it's really hard to do that. M&A is confidence dependent. It is pro-cyclical. So what you tend to see is in strong bull markets, you see an uptick in M&A. It's a lagging indicator. In tougher markets, M&A volumes go down. We've seen a little bit of that this year. If you go back and you look over a longer period of time, companies that do M&A and companies that are deploying capital either by buying back their stock or doing M&A outperform, and companies that during tough times, be it the global financial crisis, during COVID, weren't buying back their stock or weren't doing M&A underperform. I think both intuitively and the data, it makes sense to be on the front foot. The hard part is, of course, you have to be prepared to do that. And our advice to clients in times like this is hopefully you came in operationally ready. Hopefully you came in with a really strong balance sheet and you've got the cash and capital to do things. And then most importantly, from a strategic perspective, you've got a priori views before the tough market comes as to what's really important to you, what makes sense, and that you've got a framework and you've picked targets and you've done work on those such that when the opportunity arises, you can move quickly and you can move decisively and you've got your board prepared and your team prepared. Thanks, Fon. That all made sense. Can you maybe talk for a minute about examples where JP Morgan might have taken a long-term view and made acquisitions during volatile time periods? Yeah, look, WAMU is a case study in doing a transformative acquisition and the principles that we've talked about in what was clearly right the most dislocated markets any of us have seen in our careers. Jamie and the team, and I was one of the bankers working on it, had spent an enormous amount of 2008 thinking about WAMU and doing a lot of work on WAMU from public information, from prior iterations that we had looked at WAMU. And just to put it in context, the weekend of September 15th, was Lehman weekend. There was a SWAT team of us down on the Fed 
right after that weekend, clearly Lehman failed, Merrill Lynch gets bought by B of A, AIG gets nationalized. It was the most traumatic experience any of us had ever seen in our careers. And 10 days later, we bought Washington Mutual. And the only way we were able to do that is that we'd spend an enormous amount of time preparing for it. We had answered most of the questions that we knew we had to answer. Uh, We had the board prepared. We talked to our regulators about it. I think from when the FDIC called, it was a government-assisted transaction, to when it is that we announced the deal on that Thursday, the 25th, was less than a week's time to acquire what was an enormous firm and balance sheet. And it transformed the company. It added 2,000 branches. It made us a national retail bank. It got us into California and Florida. And it was really the only viable option to do that. Got it. Makes sense. As you pointed out, the market does seem to reward companies that take bold action when others are not able to or not willing to. But the question always comes down to how do you do valuations when things are moving around as drastically as they are today? Yeah. Especially if you look at what rates have done, having sold off quite dramatically through the course of this year. How do you kind of answer the question of appropriate valuation? to look at M&A opportunities at this point in time? Yes. So let's bifurcate that into two parts. I think there's the rates part, and then there's how do you deal with uncertainty? And I think the rates part is that typically higher rates don't necessarily mean lower values because there is an inverse correlation between rates and risk premiums. And typically the Fed is hiking rates into a strong market and economy. This time you've had the opposite, which is we've got higher rates and we've got greater uncertainty at at the same time. So the first thing is I think you've you've got to assume that we're at the new normal for rates, number one. And and number two, you should be stressing and thinking about rates that could be much higher if the Fed's got to go there. In terms of uncertainty and volatile times, we tend to think less about discount rates and more about scenarios and probabilities. So taking a risk management view to acquisitions and taking a stress testing view to acquisitions. So coming up with multiple scenarios and cases and making sure that one, your probability weighting them, but two, that you can live with the downside cases. In the downside cases, A, the company is still thriving and surviving, and B, that you're okay with that scenario. And I think size really matters. And one of the things we talk a lot about to firms is that risk is in both the selection of the risk and then the amount of risk that you want to take. So you can make a very risky bet for 5 or 10% of your market cap and of your company, and that's prudent. If you're making a transformational bet, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% of your market cap, you're going to need to have scenarios where in almost any scenario, it's a terrific transaction. And that as a strategic priority, what it is you're doing is a top priority and they must do. So we try to bring A, looking at it from a probability perspective, looking at it from a stress test perspective, and then just thinking about the size of the risk that you're taking in times like this. Got it. All that makes sense. I know as bankers, we like to talk about M&A and we could keep doing that for the rest of the day, but let's, let's switch focus again a bit. Let's say not every company clearly may be positioned to look at M&A at this point in time either because of balance sheet issues or because they are operating in a sector where M&A isn't realistically possible. What other topics are you engaging with your clients on, especially those, again, who are not quite either ready for or willing to do M&A at this point in time? Yeah, so we are talking a lot to folks about balance sheet and capital structure 
and clearly in good times, folks like to think about what the optimal capital structure is. And in good times, that WAC curve or that cost of capital curve tends to be relatively flat, irrespective of ratings and leverage levels. And the sweet spot tends to be if you were just optimizing the model, being a triple B company or a low triple B company. One of the things we clearly learned in the great financial crisis and over our careers is that there's a lot of volatility to the cost of capital curve. And in stressed markets, there's enormous convexity to that curve. You're better off having a more conservative capital structure so that A, you can thrive and survive in any environment, but B, more importantly, you've got the cash and the capital to take advantage of dislocated markets. So right now, for most of our clients, we're talking about extending maturities, right, building cash cushions, and being in a position that, given we do have a greater level of uncertainty, that you can A, both weather it, and B, be in a position of strength to take advantage of opportunities as they arise. Makes sense. So I think said another way, managing your capital structure kind of on a through-cycle basis seems to be the strategy that works out best, right, over the long period. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Thank you again for taking some time to talk to me and talk to our listeners. Thanks, Ram. It's been a lot of fun. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe to What's the Deal, as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow JP Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. This material was prepared by the investment banking group of J.P. Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.